with me in prayer. Lord, what a privilege it is to gather as your people and cease from your work this day, be together to hear your word and to receive your sacrament so that we may be sent forth with renewed strength. And I pray that's exactly that what happened through the proclamation of your word this morning in each and every one of our lives, that we be strengthened in the reality of who you are, Lord Jesus, that we be challenged where we need to be challenged and encouraged where we need to be encouraged, and you would meet our needs as we seek to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the great blessings of living here on the shore of Lake Erie, we have on the West Shore, is, I don't know if you realize it, but at Redwood Elementary is the most phenomenal eagle's nest you'll ever see. You know, it, it, I got on there this morning to see if they were back, and there's Mama, Lying on her eggs, it's nine degrees, you know, but God put it in them, and there they are. Mom and Dad, they've been there for the better part of 10 years now. It's, it's really exciting to see, and in a month or so, the eaglets will be hatched, and they are the ugliest birds you ever saw. You know, the, the eagles' babies are not pretty. They're kind of brown and grangy, and they don't have their white head until they're about five, you know, it, it's really a fascinating thing to watch that, 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 and as soon as they're born, you know, here comes dad bringing fish back. You know, it's really quite the sight to stand there and watch because every now and then you see dad bring back a whole fish or a squirrel or a rabbit, you know, they're hunters, man. And so they come and then, but one day, and it takes about 10 to 12 weeks, mama looks at these babies and says, all right, kids, <laughs> and kicks them out of the nest. You know, I always look to see, I never caught that live. I've seen it on National Geographic, you know, the mother just throwing them out. But I'd like to see the Avon Lake Eagles. Last year, the kids get to name the Eagles. Last year, they were Stars and Stripes, you know, great name. You know, and so Redwood names the babies every year. There's usually two or three. And so, uh, but it's just fascinating to watch these babies get kicked out. They're terrified, absolutely terrified. But all of a sudden, they do what God's put in them, and they start to fly. It's an amazing sight. And mom knows they'll fly. And mom protects them, and dad protects them. And so from that point on, dad teaches these babies how to fish, how to hunt, how to survive. And then one to two months later, the baby flies off on their own. And we never see him again. And mom and dad hang out here all summer. So I invite you on a warm summer day to come and just wait. Because it's, it's they're an amazing sight. I share that story with you because in the Christian life, Isaiah describes walking with the Lord as mounting up with wings as eagles. You know, we, we sing it, and we read that text, but do we believe it? And do we live it that way? Sadly, we know through all the research, there's many, many, many in the Christian faith, and yet, practically living it out in the community is another story altogether. They say one thing to people's faces and another thing behind their back. They make promises that they have no intention of keeping and they lay blame easily 
and become sarcastic. They give in because they're fearful of not being liked by others. They leak out anger in subtle sarcasm and criticism. They tell only the half-truth because to tell the full truth would be hurt others' feelings. And, and therefore, they have to maintain a false peace in the relationship or in the family. They avoid people and they give people they're upset with the silent treatment. And what we're going to see today in today's passage that Carol just read for us, conflict and trouble were central to Jesus' ministry. And he constantly disrupted the false peace of his disciples, the religious leaders, the, the Romans, and even his own family. Jesus understood that we cannot build the kingdom of God under false impressions and pretense. Pete Scazzaro writes in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, that really only the truth will do if we're going to be emotionally healthy disciples. And so we're going to talk about this today. And so I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 10 so that we're going to learn what that means to be an emotionally healthy disciple, practically speaking, lived out in the community. We started off a few weeks back looking at what discipleship isn't, looking at the empty profession of King Saul. You know, if Saul had grown up in today's world, he would have been that model church kid, really good looking. He would have been baptized. He would have gone through confirmation. He would have received his to be a Christian catechism and learned a little bit of it, but it never was his own. It was an empty profession. And therefore, the results were tragic for him and his family as well as the nation of Israel. We saw in week two what true faith looks like in David. That his identity was in God, in Christ. <laughs> and that David didn't listen to the voices of the culture. He didn't listen to his own flesh and to his own desires. He listened to the word of God and the spirit of God and recognized that each and every day that our battle is the Lord's battle, not our own. And he, he lived in that reality. Week three, we learned also what authentic faith looks like and that we don't define ourselves by the victimization of our past. That, you know, we might have had a messed up childhood, might have gone through some awful, awful things, but in Christ, that doesn't define us. And while they meant it for evil, God meant it for good so that I can go forth and be a blessing to others in my life. And so from there we learned, okay, you do all that, but life is still hard. And the prosperity gospel of American culture just is a falsehood. And that walls in life happen. Loved ones die. Loved ones get sick. People get divorced. People let you down. People lose their jobs. Whatever it is, none of it we ask for. But the walls of life do come to us. And our Lord Jesus taught us when we're in that wall to stay close to the Lord, press into the wall, don't bounce off of it, and constantly pray, Lord, I know you're with me. I'm not alone. Not my will, but yours be done. And so last week we learned 
to begin to live that way, we really got to ground our walk with the Lord in the daily rhythms of personal worship, morning and evening, which in our prayer book is called the daily office, and committed to a weekly Sabbath rest. And so I'm literally speaking to the choir today. You know, how was your week? How'd you do? You know, with your daily office. I know if I examined you guys, some of you say, oh, I didn't do this. Don't, don't. Welcome to life. Just keep going. It's the willingness here. It's the willingness to say, okay, Lord, not my will, but yours. Daily office, weekly Sabbath. Rest today. No work. All right? You know, minister to one another. Love one another and others as you get opportunities to. Today's a perfect day to do mercy ministry. And so... Today, we get really practical in looking at now, what does that profession look like as we go from here starting tomorrow? Nothing better than the parable of the Good Samaritan, because this is what a justified life looks like. And what we're going to learn here is what sanctification is. Sanctification is the, the belief that we're all set apart for the glory of God and to love the Lord and love one another in the church and love our community and bless our community. And that's a process. You don't reach it until you get home with the Lord, ultimately. And so, as we're sanctified, what we're going to learn from this passage is the trap we all fall into, number one. We're going to look at the loving trap of Jesus, number two. We're going to look at three, why it matters, and four, how can we live this way? Honestly, how can we live this way? All right, so first, let's look at the trap that we all fall into. It's important to keep in mind the setting of this sermon. This lawyer is a Jewish expert in the law. And he's approaching Jesus because he believes Jesus is holding the law of God in low regard. Jesus is always talking about receiving the kingdom of God now. They thought the kingdom of God is, you know, when we go home to be with the Lord. Or when we die, all right? Or, or hopefully restoring the political kingdom now, get, get out under this Roman oppression. But Jesus is talking about something more, and they know it. So he's praying, Lord, kingdom come now. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so people are thinking, well, he has a pretty low regard for the law. The law expert then comes to him and says, well, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Thinking what Jesus is going to say is, oh, just accept me as your personal Savior and you don't have to obey the law. You're in. That's what he's expecting Jesus to say, given what he's heard of Jesus to this point. But that's not what Jesus says, does he? Jesus says, What? Love the Lord your God. He said he turns it around. And he's trying to trap Jesus, but Jesus is turning the tables on him and trapping him. So let's look at the trap that he's trying to set because quite frankly, brothers and sisters, we all can fall into the same trap that he is. Doing the Christian life on our own terms rather than God's terms. And anytime we try to follow in our own terms, it's sheer slavery. It's sheer bondage. And it doesn't satisfy. All right? That's what our culture does. We, we, we say we're a Christian or we are spiritual but not religious. And we create 
a Jesus in the box, and when you open up that box, it looks a lot like us, you know. And so what happens is you end up with a population that really doesn't know, like the lawyer, who believe, uh, live unto the law, and hopefully my good deeds will outweigh my bad, and I'll be okay. I hope. Maybe. Anyway, hope the scales tip my way. Let's avoid that trap. How do we avoid that trap? By falling into Jesus' trap, all right? And by the way, as a tangent, all of Jesus' traps are loving traps. Um, Jesus is trying to trap the lawyer, but whenever Jesus is trying to trap somebody, he's just trying to get someone's attention. He's trying to wake that person up and teach that person And if you are feeling trapped right now by the way your life is going, please keep that in mind that all of Jesus' traps are loving traps. So what does Jesus, he turns around and he says, what is written in the law? Now there's two ways to answer that question. This is an expert in the law. He knows the Bible. And what is the law at that time? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The Torah. The word Torah in Hebrew means law, okay? When you hear the law and the prophets, that means all the Old Testament, right? And so he could have started and said, well, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and just kept quoting Genesis because he probably knew it. The only other possible answer is the one Jesus was driving at, which was to summarize the law as stated in the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and with all your strength. You know, do this and you shall live. Do you see Jesus' trap? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Do this and you shall live. What would you think? If you're a Christian, you're going, no, 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 I can't, Right? But that's what Jesus is trying to get him to see. And the reality is he doesn't see it. And the reason Jesus is going after that, he's looking at all the laws of the Pharisees, 600 and something of them, right? You know, you obey this one and this one, you got it down. Jesus is saying, you think you have a higher view of the law than I do, buddy, you're not even close. You're not even close. What Jesus is saying to him, you have to love the Lord your God with all your strength, all your being, nothing more than him, with all your heart, totally absorbed in his worship, allegiance, and love. That's all you have to do. That's it. Love him with 100% of your heart, 100% of your mind, 100% of your attention, 100% of your strength, 100% of your time, and your neighbor too. That's all you have to do. And the lawyer should have responded by saying, I can't. You're right. You see, whenever anybody comes to Christ, this is what Jesus does. He doesn't start by taking the heat off of you. He starts by turning the heat up. He always starts by showing you that you cannot, by your own effort, your own performance, ever hope to be accepted by God. One of my favorite historic testimonies 
and I learned this from Tim Keller, was in 1741, George Whitfield came from England to America, Anglican, you know, and started open-air preaching, because that's what he did in England. He would go to the colonies and preach the word. So that's what they did. And because he came here, it was part of the second great, first great awakening. It was an amazing thing. Hundreds, thousands of people came to hear him speak. And Nathan Cole, an illiterate Connecticut farmer, went to hear him preach in 1741. Upon hearing him preach, Nathan Cole writes in his testimony, My hearing him preach gave me a heart wound. By God's blessing, my old foundation was broken up, and I saw that my righteousness could not save me. Did you hear that? His preaching gave me a heart wound. My old foundation was broken up, and I saw that my righteousness could not save me. Basically, what Jesus is trying to do with the lawyer is the very same thing that, that Jesus did to Nathan Cole. The lawyer comes up and says, yeah, everybody down deep inside, everybody knows God created them and what have you. I know that I owe him my highest allegiance. And the lawyer should have called out the way Nathan Cole did, but he didn't. He should have cried out, my righteousness cannot save me. What do I do? And Jesus would have turned around. If he did that, Jesus would have turned around. Okay, only by the mercy of God can you be saved. Because of my mercy can you only be saved. You know, even though you are spiritually bankrupt, my dear lawyer friend, God in his mercy has sent me here to live a perfect life and die a perfect death. So when you believe in me, my spiritual riches will be transferred to your cause put in your account that's what mercy is that God has put forth his riches in me and you so if you believe the law is fulfilled through Jesus in your life it's fulfilled all the law I'll pay the penalty you owe says Jesus I'll pay the debt it's all fulfilled but what the lawyer is see he sees what Jesus is doing here. The lawyer, notice in verse 29, purposely wanted to justify himself. He was absolutely conscious of what Jesus was doing. He felt the pressure, and I'm sure it was immense. He felt Jesus' logic and he felt Jesus' reasoning. Jesus is hacking away at his identity, hacking away at his foundation, hacking away at his psychology, his religion. And in one fell swoop, Jesus was saying, listen, you think you take the law seriously? Take a look at what the law really requires and that there's no way you can fulfill it. You need to be, abandon your entire course. Abandon the ship. Get off. Maybe there's still hope. But he desires to justify himself. Maybe there's, I can still do something to earn my salvation on my own strength. So what he says is, and who is my neighbor? <laughs> and what he's trying to do is saying, look, Jesus, let's be reasonable. 
Let's see where there isn't some way to explain these principles and these precepts so as possible to obey them. Right? So what the lawyer is asking Jesus for is what's the essential righteousness that God requires of every human being? And so what Jesus gives him from that point on is a model of what such belief looks like in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's a model of compassion for others and emotionally healthy discipleship. All right, looking at this Samaritan and looking at the needs of the person who gets robbed, you know, and beaten, what does that person need but that's laying by the side of the road half dead? He needs medical attention. He needs food. He needs shelter. He needs clothing. He needs all kinds of things. He's broke. And the Samaritan fixes all of it. And the reason this is very important to keep in mind is right here when Jesus is trying to show the law expert the essence of the kind of life God requires of all all beings, he brings up meeting needs. On genuine needs. And this can be a shock to us evangelical folk. You know, we know it's, it's important to take care of the poor and take good care of people that are in need. And it's a nice thing when you can get to it. But we think we should all worship, we should all evangelize, we should all study our Bibles, we should all be in prayer, we should all have fellowship, we all... But that social compassion is optional. And what Jesus is showing us, my brothers and sisters, it's not. In Matthew 25, in the parable of the sheep and goats, you know, what separates the believers from the non-believers? Those who did social compassion. And those who didn't. Lord, when did we not? As you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you didn't do it unto me. Jesus is going to say, because you treated them like you treated me, your attitude toward the poor reveals your attitude toward me. Now, he's not saying social work is the way we get saved, friends. He's saying it's an attitude of life, my life for yours. It just flows from us naturally, wherever we are. It's life poured out in deeds of service to people in need. That's an inevitable sign of a life of faith. Right? He's not saying that doing social justice ministry is a criteria for heaven. He's just saying, this is just what we do. My life for yours. That's why in 1 John 3, he says, if you say to somebody, go, we'll be warmed and filled, and you don't you do something for them, and you don't do something for them, how does love abide in you? John says, brethren, let us not love in word only, but in deed and truth. If your love is word only, it's not true love. It has to be indeed as well. And in John, that word deed is, is translated deacon. It's deacon ministry. You know? We're all lay deacons. We're all deacons. We're all servants. And what we're talking about simply is just meeting people's needs. And there's a tend- tendency for us to whittle down into categories those who we will help and those who we won't, right? We do that. Admit it. We do, right? 
Who is my, and basically what we're saying is, well, who's my neighbor, Jesus? <laughs> Jesus, you don't mean anybody, right? And Jesus is saying to us through this parable, don't box in my commandment. You just pray that where I'm at work and join me in it. Your address is your mission field. Where you live, where you work, and where you play. And that's the loving trap of Jesus. So why does this matter? Well, first of all, Jesus is sharing this parable showing us that he disrupts the false peace that's going on here in this culture. Not just this law expert, but also us and calling us to sanctification. You know, flowing from our personal time of worship and Sabbath keeping flows a life of compassionate ministry where we live, work, and play. And as we do that, it disrupts our false peace. <laughs> right? And we, we minister to people that God's working around us that are, they look different than we are. They're religiously different. They're racially different. They're socially different. They're politically different. And what does he do here? He has a Jew being helped by a Samaritan. He didn't have a Jew helping a Samaritan because no self-respecting Jew would ever help a Samaritan. You do know that's the biggest insult in that culture you can call someone. In John chapter 8, the Pharisees called Jesus a Samaritan. The highest insult. Much like us using a profane word that begins with an F towards somebody. I mean, it, 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 you just don't say it, right? But they did. It's the worst thing you call. The tension between the Jews and Samaritans was much greater than the racism of our culture. They didn't have anything to do with somebody. But yet, here, you have a Samaritan getting down off his horse and helping the Jew. Recognizing that your neighbor is anybody in your path. And the priest and the Levite walk right on by. In their judgmental, self-righteous manner. And they did not make the connection that emotionally healthy spirituality and emotional maturity and loving God are absolutely inseparable. You can't separate them. And they missed the image bearer that's lying in the ditch that needed help along the road and they passed him by. So in other words, we all got why this matters. We all have certain talents, certain gifts, certain resources. You, you can't help everybody, but you can help some. In the early, in recognizing that the early church did. The early church in the first century, the main reason why it had such an impact was because it lived this way. The Roman Emperor Julian saw the rapid growth of the church. This is before the church became Christianized. And so he saw the temples being emptied and people going into these house churches all over the Roman Empire. So he spruced up some of the Roman temples. He built a few more Roman temples and told everybody, come to the temple. We're Romans. We worship the gods. 
And the problem is he wrote is nothing has contributed to, this, uh, to the progress of the superstitions of these Christians as their charity to strangers. The impious Galileans provide not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. So if you ask Julian what gave Christianity its power, he didn't see their worship even though it was there. He didn't see their Bible studies even though it was there. He didn't see all their other things. The only thing he saw was that Jews taking care of Jewish poor, Greeks taking care of Greek poor, Romans taking care of Roman poor, and the Christians helped them all. (laughs) They took care of everybody. He said they take care not only of their own poor, but ours as well. They're promiscuous with their generosity. What's with these people? And as a result... They were unbelievably attractive. And there is nothing that has given them more power in their culture than their compassionate service and loving deeds. How about us? We're praying for revival. We're praying that the Lord would do a great work. Well, friends, it's going to come as we engage in mercy ministry around us. And maybe our culture will change. Well, you see, how do we do this? is the natural question. Because if I left you right there, I would just give you a 1,000-pound barrel of guilt. huh? I don't want to do that. You see, if I stopped there, that's all I'd be doing is giving you a guilt trip. And I want you to know if you leave from here saying, well, I'm going to go out and do loving deeds, and that's your only motivation, you're not going to get very far. And you're going to burn out quick. Jesus Christ tells us in verse 33, the Samaritan, he had no legal obligation to help the man. He didn't have to. That's the way they worked between Jews and Samaritan. My Samaritan law says, I don't have to help that Jew. I could have kept going and nobody could have, would have said a thing to me. Right? Same thing, vice versa. He had no moral obligation. Nobody would have expected him to stop. But why did he stop? Verse 33. He was moved with compassion. The Greek word there is a phenomenal word. You've heard me use this before, and I love to say it. It's the Greek word. He was moved with splogizomai. It's compassion that comes out of my gut. You know, I just, it just comes out of me because I love God. i got to meet this need. Nobody would have expected him to stop, but it moved him. And it's the word most often used to describe the emotional state of Jesus in the New Testament. The Samaritan was moved with the love of Christ. So here's the point. If you understand that you're poor and Jesus poured out his riches on you, that you're spiritually bankrupt and he paid your account, You're the person that's beaten on the road and Jesus got off and impoverished himself for you. When you see that Jesus was your neighbor, like that, that's motivation. But if you're just a person who believes you're a good person and God accepts you based on that goodness that you have, you have no motivation to take care of the needy, really. But if you're a Christian who understands this gospel and you'll know that when you were dying on the road 
bloodied in an absolute mess. Jesus Christ with no obligation poured out his riches for you and me so that he could make us whole. When we understand that and we're able to go out in the community, maybe we can bridge the gaps of some of these people that are so different than we are. I don't understand this culture. I've long stopped trying to in many ways. I try to understand it because we need to minister within it. But there comes a time where we just say, no, I'm staying here. This is where I belong because this is truth. But until we go out meeting needs like this, what right do we have to say, come and see? They'll say, who cares? What's so great about you? Jesus Christ says, unless people see a visible love that's remarkable and hard to explain and inexplicable, people have the right to write us off. And the point is, Jesus Christ says, we just take what we have and we minister with the resources that we have to help anybody that crosses our path. We are simply beggars showing other beggars where to find bread both physical and spiritual. Being intentional, growing, and serving all who cross my path where I live, work, and hang out. And that means we'll fly like an eagle. And that's not just a Steve Miller song. Isaiah thought it years ago that we will mount up with wings as eagles and soar. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, have mercy on us as we are so often aware of how often we treat people just as objects instead of seeing them as people who are created in your image. We have unhealthy ways of relating to others that are deeply embedded in us. And so we pray that this Lenten season, you would change us. Make us vessels to spread a mature reliable love based on your grace so that the people we, whom, with, whom we come in contact with sense your tenderness and your kindness. Deliver us from false peacemaking that is driven by our fear. And Lord Jesus, help us to love others like you love and grow us into emotionally healthy disciples through the Holy Spirit's power. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.